0: Our reading today is from John chapter 7. After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now to verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: In the story that we're going to look at today, we're going to see one of the three most important traditions in the Jewish church. The Jewish church, the Jewish religion. There were three festivals that were very important, and the story that we're going to look at in John chapter seven comes at one of those festivals. Is and you saw, you heard Cheryl read it for you. It was called the festival, festival of booths. Sometimes it's called the feast of tabernacles, which is not really the right way of speaking about it. The festival of booths, this festival of shelters. Um, the Jews call it even today Sukkot, Sukkot. And this was an extremely popular and important festival that they observed um, every year. Let me tell you a little bit of, uh, about that. It, as I said, it was one of the three great uh, Paso- uh, tradi- uh, festivals. Once, one was the Passover, the, which occurred early in the spring, Pentecost, which occurred 50 days later, and then the uh, Sukkot, or the Festival of the Booths, or the In-Gathering. It had different names. It was an eight-day festival, it followed Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the most holy and somber day in the Jewish year uh, when you confessed your sins. And then they had this one-week period of, of festival gladness. Um, they, often, they call it even today the season of our rejoicing or the season of, of festival uh, gladness. It's eight days, uh, and, and it starts. this past year it was on, started on September 30th. So it's kind of a fall festival. And one of the things that they did by, Jewish, by, by Mosaic law They were commanded to build shelters on their property. They built tents, they built booths, and even so today, in fact, I should—I was going to put one on a PowerPoint. They do it still today. They, they build these temporary shelters on their roof or outside, and, and they virtually live in those for seven or eight days. One of the things they're very serious about is they eat all their meals in the booths. Now imagine, you've got a five-year-old, you've got your kids. And hey, we're going to live, for, we're going to camp on our property for a week. It's fun, right? It's an important, you know, kids loved it, and families, even today, Jewish families will spend a lot of time decorating and having their own little temporary shelter, the booths, that they will create as a part of the festival of the booths. It was a very important festival. And also because it occurred at the end of the harvest time, it was a way of celebrating God's bounty. Um, uh, they were camping out. And if they were able, they would often even stay there. It had an, an historical meaning and an agricultural meaning. The historical meaning was to remind them of the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. It was to remind them of the time when they had no home, and to remind them of how blessed they were now to have a home. One way to, you notice when you go camping, you enjoy camping, but when you come back home, it's sort of nice to turn the water on. It's sort of nice to be able to get that hot shower. It's nice to be able to go in the refrigerator and get something. I'd say, oh, this is nice. Being away helps you appreciate what you have. And so this festival was to remind them of God's gracious goodness to them over the course of their wandering, but then in bringing them into the promised land. So it had a an historical meaning, but it also had an agricultural meaning, meaning. It had to do also with celebrating God's bounty. In many ways, it really was and is like Christian, the holiday of Thanksgiving for us, occurring in November. In the end of the Jewish year, they would have this harvest festival, the agricultural meeting. It was a season of great rejoicing. And there was a tradition that began, and this is all background to this story, several hundred years before Jesus was on the uh, on the scene, where the Jews had this certain routine and ritual that they would do. Every morning at sunrise, early in the morning, they would all gather near Herod's temple, Herod's uh, uh, palace, uh, uh, temple, excuse me, and, the, and they'd be there with, say, citrus fruit in their hand and, and some certain branches, the Bible describes, prescribes what they're supposed to do, and the priest would go and get a, a special golden goblet, a golden pitcher, and they would process down from the temple down toward the uh, the, the pool of Siloam, an important pool that was there, and they would, have, they would sing Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, the Hallel Psalms they referred to, they'd chant them, and they'd go down to the water, down into the pool, the priest would carry this big golden pitcher, and he would ceremonially pick up that water, and they would go and they would say uh, isaiah twelve three with joy you draw water from the wells of salvation. This is part of their tradition, their routine, and then they would follow the priest continuing to chant these psalms and go back up to the temple and then the priest would go to the altar, okay, and he would go there, and he would take in a very ceremonial way, he would take and pour that water over the altar out the front of the temple. And they'd all celebrate because, of course, there is no agriculture without water, right? And so it became a way of celebrating God's goodness and and God's provision. And they did this seven days in a row. Day one, day two, day three, five, seven days in a row. And on the eighth day, uh, it turned out to be an eight-day festival. Generally, they didn't didn't do that. For some reason, they didn't do it on that day, but in those seven days, they did that. Well, this is the context for the action in John chapter uh, uh, 7, and its climax is found in the verses which uh, I printed there for you. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom he, uh, who, uh, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet this Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So now do you see what is significant on the eighth day, the day when the water is not poured out on the temple, Jesus shows up in a public way, and he says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me. And rivers of living water will flow in him and through him to us. Can you imagine how dramatic that was? This was a, a huge public uh, demonstration of who he, uh, who he was. Now, we're going to look at four things in this passage um, uh, that we're going to see that Jesus teaches us about living water. Now, just before I get to those things, I just want to remind you of the context. In the first verse, and I printed the whole text here in your, your handout, uh, we see that the danger is growing. There's more and more conflict. People are kind of wondering, who is Jesus? And some are upset with Him, and And even His brothers in verse 6, they want Him to go publicly at the beginning of the feast, to, to come in and to show Himself, because this is a huge gathering event. You know, He did the feeding of the 5,000 not too long before. Go in, and there'll be thousands of people who will see you. Jesus says no, because it's not his time, not his Cairo's time, not the right moment. What Jesus knows is that the time for him to enter Jerusalem is not during the celebration of the in-gathering, but the celebration of the Passover, the sacrificial lamb, which comes six months from this time period. So he doesn't go there publicly. So he's not there at the beginning and people are asking these questions in verse 12. Who is Jesus? Where is he? this, This Chapter is dominated by the question of who is Jesus. Now, in verse 14, we realize that Jesus goes up quietly in the middle of the feast. So when he says to his brothers, I'm not going up, he doesn't mean I'm not going to go at all. He's just not going to go at the beginning when all the where people were gathering, you know, the, the large procession of people. And he sneaks his way in during the middle of the feast. And in the 14th, we see him teaching um, and uh, had his like a preaching point. It was common that day for different rabbis. to have the little preaching point in the temple courts. And Jesus all of a sudden shows up and starts preaching and teaching. And controversy and questions happen uh, around him. They're still talking about his healing of the man by the pool the last time he was in Jerusalem when he did it on this Sabbath day. And Jesus says some things about that to clarify that for them. Um, And they begin now, the Pharisees begin to send some other officers to arrest Jesus. See, down in Galilee, excuse me, down in Judea, remember there's two parts to uh, that area. Galilee, where Jesus was from, was under the rule of Herod Antipas at this point. And, but down in Judea, in Jerusalem area, the Pharisees, the Jewish people had control. So they actually had their own guards and their own uh, police department. So they would, this is why it was so dangerous for Jesus to be down there in Jerusalem area. So they sent, and they were talking about arresting him, and, and yet they're impressed by his teaching. Now, Jesus makes, on the, seven, on the 37th verse now, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There are four things that we want to see in this text. You can jot them down if you want. Number one, we need to see the need for living water. Jesus says at the very beginning, if anyone thirsts. Remember, this is a story to remind them about the wilderness wandering. They just have been coming day after day and seeing the water poured out on the temple. And on the one day that they don't pour the water on the temple, Jesus shows up and he says, I have living water. This is a picture of how Jesus provides for our deepest thirst. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Chances are some of you have. You went for a hike in the desert and it turned out to be longer than you expected um, you, uh, uh, you know, you you found yourself away from fluids for a long period of time. You know that dryness you're drinking, making you thirsty right now. Some of you wanting to drink, right? Thir- you know how important w- water is. The second most important thing that we need after oxygen. Do you know that we can, we can last longer without food than we can without um, than without water? So water is of incredible importance, and we have been thirsty. I remember when I was in high school. I was very slightly built. I'm still a little bit slight, but I found out when I went to the doctor a few months ago that I'm not nearly as, as light as I had thought I was. You know, you don't want to go on the scale, right? You know? Anyway, I was, and so I wrestled my senior year, and I lost 15 pounds in order to wrestle. I weighed naturally about 140 pounds, you know, 135. I wrestled at 119 pounds. And I was as tall as I am today. It was the kind of thing they would never allow you to do today, but we were, didn't know any better back then. You know, everybody's tough. And the only way that I could lose that weight, and I lost it every week, you know, because you regained it on the weekend. The only way I could lose that weight was about two days before the meet. I had to stop drinking any fluid at all. It was so bad that I had to get up slowly because my equilibrium was out. It was very, very unsafe. And, and uh, let's just say I didn't, I didn't spend much time in the bathroom during the course of rest, wrestling season because everything that went on my body went to be used in my, uh, in my body. And I was so thirsty so many times, so many times. We are thirsty. They knew about thirst. You know about thirst. And Jesus is speaking, of course, metaphorically as well. We have a a deep thirst. We have a Jeremiah chapter two verse thirteen says, "For my people have committed two evils: they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water." If you're honest with yourself, you know you've tried to assuage thirst in ways that don't really satisfy your needs we're all you know you know that commercial stay thirsty my friends we don't need that reminder all of us are thirsty. You know, why does the young man purposely do poorly in school and rebel against authority? Because he's thirsty for significance. Why does the young girl give herself to her pleading boyfriend? Why? For security and for love, because she's thirsty for that. She desperately wants it. Why does a couple spend way more money than they have on things they think they need, because they think it will give to them uh, solve their thirst issues. You know, why do innocent pleasures so quickly become devastating addictions? Because we're thirsty. We're thirsty for significance. We're thirsty for security. We're thirsty for transcendence. We're thirsty for approval. We're thirsty for purpose, for meaning, for pleasure, for power, for stuff. We're just thirsty, my friends. We have in this bright commercial, I think it is, a deep down body thirst. All of us have it. And all of us are trying to fulfill it. And to us, the invitation comes from Isaiah in the 55th chapter, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Later he says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich Jesus offers us living water because, number one, because we have a need for living water. If any of one thirsts, it's not for any particular person. It's for every person. That's the first thing, the need for living water. The second thing is the source for living water. The source for living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He promises to anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. Now remember when he says this, on the last day of the feast, the the one day when water is not poured out on the altar, how do we drink? It is free and it is open. Come to me and drink. I I couldn't help but think about uh, an episode that occurs in the silver chair, which is one of C.S. Lewis's uh, books in the Chronicles of Narnia, which, of course, all of you have read or will read because that's what you should do, and you want to be a well, uh, you know, it's not just for children. In this silver chair, we have a new character introduced, and her name is is Jill, and she, ha- she just ends up in Narnia with Eustace, her friend, who's already uh, already been there, and and she's terrified by this experience at the beginning, and she finds herself separated from Eustace because of her own showing off, and, uh, and, and finds herself, it's, well, let me pick up this story. She finds herself face-to-face with a lion. Now, we know who this lion is, but she doesn't know who this lion is. She's terrified of this lion, and yet she's found herself incredibly thirsty. Um... And it says, I'll pick up the story here, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. So she's by a river, but there's a lion right there. She's dying of thirst, but afraid of the lion. If you are thirsty, you may drink. These were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her, and for a second she didn't realize that it had come directly from the lion himself. It was deeper, thicker, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different sort of way. "'Are you not thirsty?' said the lion. "'I'm dying of thirst,' said Jill. "'Then drink,' said the lion. "'May I?' "'Could I? Would you mind going away while I do?' (laughs) said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "'Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come?' said Jill." "'I make no promise,' said the lion." Jill was so thirsty, now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. "'Do you eat girls?' she said. "'I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and conquerors, cities and realms,' said the lion. He didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were angry. Uh, it just said it. "'I daren't come and drink,' said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water with her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water you ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Now she realized that this would have been, on the whole, the most dangerous thing to have left this water. So she got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. I love that little image because it speaks to the heart that we are dying of thirst and we are by the stream. Jesus offers us living water. But when we come to Him, we come to Him on the terms of the lion. We must yield, kneeling before Him, coming in faith, and yield to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus offers us living water. Let's look thirdly at the result of living water. Out of His heart will throw, flow rivers of living water. It really says out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And there's a, a, a beautiful image here about water. We can't take the time to go through it right now. Um, but it speaks that we will be satisfied and then we will become a person who satisfies others. Satisfaction comes to us and flows through us to others. You see, we don't just get satisfied, but we become the kind of people who bring satisfaction uh, to others. There's a beautiful image. You can look it up in Ezekiel 47 and in Zechariah 14 and Revelation 22, this image about water that flows from the city of God out towards people. Out of His innermost being will flow living water. Let's go fourthly to the final thing, the cost of living water. It says there, He spoke this about the Spirit, because it had not yet been whom those who believed in him were about to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I wish I had time to really talk about this part of the story. But here John says that the water doesn't come until the Son is glorified. What is John talking about? You know, don't you? You're talking about Jesus' death. It's only through the death of Jesus that the living water, the truly satisfying water that we need, can be given to us. It's only through his sacrifice of his life that his spirit can then be given to us and fulfill us and through us refresh other people. It's an image really back to the time, remember when Moses hit the rock and the water came out of the rock? And the, and, and this is an important image in the Bible of how God... Uh, took the strike of Moses' rod, and water came out of that rock. You see, this is a picture of Jesus who is glorified for us by his death and resurrection. So Jesus offers to them living water. Last week we saw he offered them living bread, and now he's offering them living water. And so, John wants us to know that it is only through the sacrificial death of Jesus that this soul thirst can be quenched. See, the beautiful news is this, and I'll close with this thought, is that Jesus quenches your thirst. And I don't know if I've done a good job of helping you to see, but the truth is you, every one of us, is deeply thirsty in ways we don't always know. What is it that makes me buy what I can't afford despite what I want? What is it that makes me um, give in to lustful temptations? What is it that makes me do these things? What is it that makes me become abusive towards people that I care about? It's because I'm thirsty, and only Jesus can give uh, give us the answer to that thirst. Jesus satisfies our thirst, but let's fast forward to the 19th chapter of John when Jesus is up there on the cross, and he says, I thirst. Jesus experienced true thirst so you could have true living water, the kind that refreshes you and through you refreshes others. I invite each of you, receive Jesus, not uh, just for yourself, but so that you can be a refreshment to others. Let's have prayers. We close. Father, we are so grateful that you, you experienced the cosmic thirst of the whole world there on that cross so that we could experience springs of living water flowing in us and through us. Our world needs, desperately needs, water. Thank you for the water we've had this weekend, but we need more than just physical water. We need people who let the Spirit of God flow in them and through them. We thank you for that promise in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.